2: I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is What well, I learned at 20 is...
1: Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Wren. How's it going, bro?
3: I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. And I know you always say <laughs> that I say I'm excited. And look, it's because I love what I do. <laughs> but I'm also excited for this episode because... This was something that was really brought to us by our community. Mm. We'll do the intro in a second, but this is one of the first interviews that has really been organic. It's been a groundswell from our community. It's been an overwhelming demand for us to talk about this this product and to talk to this CEO. So I'm excited to bring the community what, what they want to hear.
1: Absolutely. So I guess without further ado, uh, we should be introducing... The CEO of ShareSite, Doug Morris, to
4: the show. Welcome, uh, Doug. Welcome. Thank you very much, guys. Good to be here. That was uh, that was quite the build up. Hope can...
3: <laughs> Hopefully, I you hope can, I uh, can deliver.
4: <laughs> oh man, no one's ever been that excited about portfolio tracking administration <laughs> software. Well, before, you should I love it.
3: you should hang out in our EquityMates discussion group because I'm going to say there are there are people that excited. Right.
4: It's it's all about big big fish, small ponds. That was a lesson <laughs> I learned a long time ago. So. No,
1: likewise, Ren. I'm keen to get stuck into this one. It's been in the works for a while, so good to have you on the show, Doug. Just a bit of a background on Doug before we jump into our classic opening, overrated, underrated game. Doug's obviously, as you can tell by the accent, born in the US, started his career at Chicago Board of Trade and then spent five years at Morningstar, and joined ShareSite in 2013, which we will obviously delve into a bit and has since been promoted to the role of CEO in 2015 and remains there today. So quite a journey that we'll we'll delve into a bit. But Doug, I'll throw to Alec because we always like to start with a bit of a game to warm us up. Cool.
3: That's it. So we call this game overrated or underrated, but it maybe should be called overvalued or undervalued. Essentially, we throw out different investing themes, topics, indexes, and we like to get our guests' thoughts on whether they're overvalued or undervalued, just to get a sense of where your thoughts are around some of the hottest topics in the market today. So, are you up for playing? Let's do it. Okay. So, to start off local, overvalued or undervalued, the ASX 200 index? Overvalued. Overvalued. Even after the couple of weeks we've seen... Even after the
1: couple of weeks. I I
4: would encourage you to to zoom out a little bit more and have a look at that chart and just kind of put it in perspective. But I think it's a bit overvalued still.
1: Yeah, I do. I've been doing a lot of that recently of going to the three to five year chart and reminding (laughs) myself that things are all okay.
4: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
1: I guess then that sentiment would carry to the S&P 500,
4: overvalued, undervalued? Yeah, there again, I think it's, it's overvalued. Even more so, I mean, the... If you look at the underlying companies in the, in the S&P 500, there's so much more tech contribution in the States than there is in Australia. I think the the Aussie ASX 200 is like 2% of the market cap, I think, or maybe 2% of the underlying revenue is from tech companies, probably market cap. And then I think in the US, it's more like 20 or 25% of the market cap. So if you take that into consideration and you know what tech stocks have done, then the S&P 500 is going to be more overvalued than the ASX 200.
3: So, Doug, we're recording this podcast on the 10th of March for people to put it in perspective. We've had a couple of weeks of panic selling across the world. We kicked off the week with a 7% drop in the Australian market, followed by 7% drops in a number of markets overnight. Tuesday, the day that we're recording, the market was relatively flat, but there's definitely a lot of panic out there around the coronavirus. So, with that context in mind, Overvalued or undervalued, the coronavirus's impact on the economy.
4: Oh man, it's probably overvalued. I just think that the way that information is collected and disseminated these days—you know, everyone's got a story about it. Everyone is is kind of threading that into their daily life. You know, as I do this podcast from my kids' like rumpus room, I'm stepping over rolls and rolls <laughs> of toilet paper that my wife has amassed, um, and she's a very rational, uh, level-headed person, so. I would say probably overvalued, and I guess I'm hope, I hope I'm right about that because it's it's certainly a scary thing and, and something to be taken seriously for sure. But like you mentioned, the the falls we've had over the last I don't know week and a half or so of trading sessions. But then the ASX was back up, I think about three percent. I just checked this evening, and it, it's had its best day uh, in three years, just on a on a daily basis. So the volatility I think is is here to stay.
1: So you mentioned before we were recording that you've just made a fresh move uh, to the northern parts of Sydney. So overrated or underrated Australia's housing
4: market? Oh, my God. I I have to say overrated (laughs) because I'm still thinking about the the price we paid for our house. And and I'm thinking about, you know, I, I can't help. But compare that to kind of the midwestern suburban lifestyle that I that I'm used to, you know, and, and what like my parents and aunts and uncles and, and friends have all paid for their houses. So um, yeah, I gotta say, overvalued. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and then to close out the game, overvalued or undervalued? Managing your own super?
4: Oh, undervalued for sure. I think like I'm, I'm really. Passionate about this, obviously, because I I run a business that helps people track their investments and we want more self-directed investors out there. But I learned this, we might get into this a bit later, but I learned kind of the value and the benefit of getting your hands into your own retirement savings. I mean, my first job at Morningstar. And it's relatively low stakes because you can't really touch the money until you retire. It's tax-free. There are certain limitations on what you can and can't do with it, depending on you know, the plan or the super that you're with. And I just think more people ought to be encouraged to do it. You know, I think if you look at these these initiatives from the government to kind of have a kind of a one-size-fits-all super and all that, I think it's all well-intentioned. But paradoxically, the more control you give people, I believe, and the more hands-on you encourage them to be, the smarter investors they'll become.
1: Yeah, that's, that's uh, an interesting way to think about it. I like it's a, a low sort of risk game anyway before we get into share doug we always like to understand a bit about your personal background and that always starts with getting the story of your first investment so we would love to know what that was sort of what led to it and perhaps any major lessons that you still carry from that first investment through to today
4: sure so my first investment was in high school and that was shares in disney Yeah, yeah, (laughs) still got them. No, I sold them because I made a a stupid financial decision later in in university, which I'm happy to get into as well. Which, which might be a lesson for people on taking a credit card out from Walmart when you want to buy something dumb. But (laughs) that's that's a different story. But we'll get there. Yeah, it was Disney, and it was I was part of a team in my econ class, and we enrolled in the the teacher enrolled us in the state of Illinois stock market game and we ended up advancing i think we won our school and we won like our district and i don't know got like a free t-shirt out of it but it was all in the back of our bet in disney and admittedly we had done you know what we thought was research but it, it didn't amount to much honestly we, we were we were honestly just buying the brand because you know as as uh kids in high school we were familiar with it this would have been in, in the late 90s so you know we're familiar with the brand and i think to for to carry that through to today, that plays into what's known as looking for companies with wide moats. This is a concept that was popularized by Morningstar. It's a, it's a really it's a cool concept and it's it's easy for a lot of people to grasp. So a moat is like a defensive moat around a castle. And in this case, with Disney, their moat is their brand. It'd be classified as an intangible asset. But you know, if you think about brands like Disney or Coca-Cola or Tiffany's, you know, for diamond rings or things like that. That brand carries so much cachet and if you're thinking about making a long term investment, it typically helps the return of that stock over time.
3: I like the fact that you invest in what you know though. That's very Peter Lynch style. Mm. You were probably probably a user of the product, probably watching Disney and you know, you knew that they were valuable. So don't sell your research short.
4: <laughs> yeah, well that, that is something that I that I still do today. I think knowing companies you invest in is really, really important.
3: So moving on from that first investment in the share market game in school, you went to college in Dallas and then you started your career at Morningstar in the US. So can you tell us a bit about your early days in finance and maybe that story about that big financial mistake you
4: made in college? <laughs> yeah, sure. So my dad uh, worked in finance, so I always had it in mind that that was something I wanted to do. Mostly. My dad, commodities trader on the, in the Chicago board trade on the trading floor. So he traded. Uh, soybean futures mostly in the open outcry pits, which if you've, you've seen that depicted in in shows or movies like trading places. It's kind of the rough and tumble, everyone's screaming at each other and pushing each other around. That's where I started as a runner and as a clerk way back in the day, working for my dad and, and some of his mates down there. And then I, I kind of got a taste of that and and I wasn't quite into kind of the speculative nature of, of that industry. And also, from guidance from my dad, he was like, Yeah, you don't want to get into this. Most guys don't last for more than a few years down here. So I kind of went to the, to the other extreme of the, the investment realm, which was kind of the, the staid world of like mutual fund analysis with Morningstar. But Morningstar is based in Chicago, which is where I'm from. So after a uni in Texas, I went back home. I got a job there and I, I began as an analyst, really like a, 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 what they called a, a data analyst. And I was basically tasked with testing financial modeling software and assumptions. So it would be my job to say, okay, here's an individual earning X amount of dollars per year. Here's their risk appetite. Here's the the mutual funds or managed funds, as we'd say in Australia, available to them. Let's play that out over 35 years and kind of what happens to the return and the risk profile and things like that. So unbeknownst to me at the time, it ended up being like a really solid academic grounding in asset allocation research and just really broad principles of investing.
1: And then, Doug, I think we would love to know the story about the big mistake that you made from a finance point of view at university.
4: Yeah. So what I did was uh, it was with all my housemates at university down in Texas. and We decided that we needed some more entertainment in the place that we were living in. <laughs> so on a whim, we went to Sam's Club, which Sam's Club is basically like a Costco. It's a, it's a wholesale kind of bulk wholesale retailer in the states. If you've ever been to the states, you've gone to a Walmart. Sam's Club is like the gigantic version of Walmart. So it's like it's it's enormous in scale. And this is in Texas too where everything's bigger. So we go in there and we decide that you know, it's a great idea to buy an air hockey table. Nice. So we all pitch in. Yeah. Is air hockey a thing in Australia? Do you guys know what that is? Yeah, yeah, we know what, we it, know is. what it is. I wouldn't
1: say it's a thing though. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. Right. Well, it's it's an awesome game. So, you know, we all kind of pooled our cash together and it, it came down to somebody had to, I don't know, we were short, of course, or something like that. And so when you when you join one of those wholesale, wholesale warehouses, they make you sign up. And of course, this being the US where there's, very few consumer protections, especially in the financial space. They're like, "Hey, you want a credit card with your subscription?" And of course, you know, when you're 20, you're like, "Yeah, sure, load me up." You know, <laughs> and it was like a five thousand dollar limit on the thing or something like that, which, which is just an astronomical amount of money to somebody who's who's in their 20s at uni. And of course, we put the air hockey table on the credit card, and you know, I like. Failed to make a, a payment here or there, and and got hit with finance charges, and had to sell my Disney shares to uh, oh, to fund no. my air hockey <laughs> table. So I'm sure somebody out there could do the math and figure: okay, you buy Disney shares, and you know, 1998 carry those forward to today, or. Or an asset such as an air hockey table and figure out what the difference in return would have been over time. Yeah, so. what would that air hockey table have compounded to over <laughs> yeah. the last... Yeah. a lot exactly. of <laughs> air hockey tables. There, there's, there's economic utility, of course, in having parties and having your friends over at, uh, and playing air hockey.
3: True, <laughs> true. So, you made the move to Australia after that. Before we get into your career in Australia and the work you're doing at ShareSight, I'm interested to know your perspective having worked in finance in America and now working in finance in Australia. What are some of the key differences you're noticing between the two countries?
4: Yeah, I guess the the, the one big difference is the um, the retail wealth management space, as, we, as we'd call it in the States, which is kind of like financial planning in Australia. The, the retail wealth management space in the US is so much bigger and so much stronger. and And even on like a per capita basis, I mean... You know the whole concept in Australia of bank aligned dealer groups and, and large institutions and investment platforms and um, superannuation um, that has kind of turned on its side and has been for a long time in the states. And so that also means that that investments like mutual funds are accessible to basically anybody in the US. I mean, it's sort of pre-programmed into your head. Like if, if you grew up, you know, watching any kind of sports on television or anything like that in the States, it's all mutual fund ads. You know, it's like a whale jumping out of the ocean and it's all about stability and strength and blah, 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 blah. And I think that the minimum investments in these sort of like fidelity funds or, you know, Putnam or becoming these old school companies, is about 500 bucks. Wow. And so you're always kind of trained to, to take a tax return if you get it, especially as a young person. It's, it's commonplace in the States to get a bit of a return when you file your tax to basically just whack that into what's known as an IRA, which is like a, like a super. It's a, it's a tax sheltered retirement account and just accumulate your savings there. You can pick and choose mutual funds, you can pick and choose shares to buy. It's a much more accessible and, and much more retail friendly investment market in the US. And also being the US, the just the prices on, on retail goods, be they, you know, trainers or be they managed funds, are so much lower. That is the main difference that that I notice.
1: Do you think that's driven by pure volume though? Like there's just a lot more people over there. Or is it a like fundamentally
4: a mindset thing? Like, so I think it's volume. Volume is one thing. Like, they you know the the scale of the U.S. economy is just is just incredible. But I also think it's because of superannuation, and this is kind of a weird paradox that I've noticed over the years of, of working in Australia. Super is a great concept. Like, don't get me wrong, I think it's awesome. But in an odd way, because it's mandatory, it's just everyone just thinks of it as super, right? Yeah. Like your, your money's just out of your paycheck pre-tax and it just goes into quote unquote super. And, and it's, it almost disincentivizes people from taking an active management role in their own finances, if that makes sense. And so I think if you're, if those institutions, like traditionally the banks, the, the, the big four in Australia, are kind of just hoovering up those mandatory nine and a half percent contributions from everybody in the country, there's not a lot of discretionary demand out there mm. for young investors or even kind of middle-aged type investors um, in, in Australia. The
3: other big difference being that Australians just love to invest in property at the mm. exclusion of basically everything else.
4: That's, that's also very true. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And, and, and the other difference too, just, just specifically, is, is dividends too with franking credits. You know, Dividend stocks are, are so much more popular in, in Australia versus the States.
3: Now, Doug, just to, on a point of terminology, I'm sure people are unfamiliar with the term mutual funds. So do you mm-hmm. want to just, because it's not something that we have, or it's not terminology that we use in Australia. So do you want to just explain what that is?
4: Sure. So a mutual fund is the common term for a managed fund in the US. It's exactly the same thing. And you'd have a managed fund, you know, or excuse me, in, in the States, you have a mutual fund, you have different share classes of mutual funds. So if you're investing as a retail person or through an advisor, you'll come in through a different... Sort of sleeve, if that makes sense. And it's the same thing in Australia with managed funds. You know you can access a managed fund through your corporate super, you can access it through your financial advisor who might use an in investment platform. But fundamentally, it's the same thing. And often it's the same global financial companies running strategies that these that these roll up into.
1: So Doug, how would you define your investing philosophy personally?
4: Yeah, so I guess what I like to do is I use a bedrock of ETFs. And an ETF just just to define it is exchange traded funds. But it's like a managed fund, but it just trades on the exchange and you can get in and out of them very quickly and they're very low cost. And there's an ETF really for everything. So if you want to track an index like the SP five hundred or the ASX two hundred, you can find an ETF for that. If you want to track a specific country, there's an ETF for that. If you if you want to track a specific sector or even a derivative. There's probably an ETF for that as well. So I build like a bedrock of ETFs, and I tend to to favor global share markets. So I own, you know, some S&P 500 via a couple of ETFs. I own an all world uh, share market ETF. I own some ASX 200 through through the through an ETF as well, and I kind of use that as as the core of, of my portfolio, both on a discretionary basis and for my own super. And then I like to pick stocks that I that I know. So sharesight is a is a software company specifically we're we're known as a software as a service company, which is a subscription based revenue model and so I look for for other companies like that as well where I can look at their annual report and the terminology they're using and the metrics they're using make sense to me so in in, in a sort of a grand scale that would be companies like Salesforce or companies like Atlassian did you get on zero or zero as well yeah another great example and I, and I do own zero yeah great stock <laughs> it is it is a great stock, right? done well. It, it is it has
3: so doug you touched on share there and i think this is a good time to get stuck into it now i obviously gave it a big pump up at the start of this episode but there are definitely people that aren't familiar with it and if i'm honest i wasn't familiar with it before our equity mates community started talking about it so for people that don't know what Sharesite is if we start very broad can you tell us what share is and what it does
4: So ShareSight is a portfolio tracking tool. So what we do is we help investors. You can plug in your accounts from various online brokers. You can upload information from spreadsheets. We've got tools that help you automate all of this stuff. Once you get your data in, we'll show you your your true performance. So that's annualized performance of your investments. We'll show you the impact of capital gains or losses. So that's basically share price movements and the impact in your portfolio. We'll show you the return you've made from dividends, and we'll even show you the impact of foreign currency if you happen to own any overseas investments as well. So you can cut any kind of time periods you want in ShareSite. You can run attribution to understand who's contributing or detracting from from your performance. And then you can run tax reports as well. So you can run capital gains tax reports, unrealized capital gain, and taxable income, i.e. dividend reports as well.
3: Now, the obvious question that arises is, what's different with ShareSite compared to viewing your portfolio in your brokerage account or viewing it in a spreadsheet? So,
4: yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. That's 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 the number one question we get, like at events or you know on Twitter or anywhere anywhere we we talk to our customers. So, the main difference with a broker, and this is really important. So, if you use Comsec, which you know half the audience probably listening to your podcast probably does. Um, Com- ComSec will show you um, a total return, irrespective of any time frame, And they won't show you any information on dividends as well. So in my case, I own a company called Illumina, which is uh, an aluminium company. I got that Aussie pronunciation right. I'm pretty proud of myself. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's an aluminium production company. And I bought it like in 2014. So if you look at ComSec, it'll show that my return on that investment is something like, I don't know, 1,000% or 800%. But it's not. If you chunk that into annualized components, the return is much more pedestrian. And the other thing Compsight doesn't show me is the impact of dividends that Illumina has paid me as well. And then finally, with the brokers, most people, when they create a new brokerage account, they'll bring in money from elsewhere, right? So you'll bring in funds from, a, from an older brokerage account, or you may transfer them in from, from somewhere else. And that's known as a cost base. So having accuracy over your cost base is basically the same way as saying you need to understand what your starting point is to then track your performance from there. And if you move money into a place like ComSec, they basically say, okay, you're transferring in $10,000. That's your starting point. And so whatever money you have in there, they just assume that you've made a gain, quote unquote, of $10,000. And if you look at the chart, it basically does like a stair step up. To your new value level and they consider that as performance it's not it's just value tracking share site conversely shows you the impact of market moves the impact of stock moves the impact of dividends and we smooth it all out for you to give you a much more accurate picture of what's going on inside your portfolio and the same thing with spreadsheets honestly i mean spreadsheets they can be really basic something even like a spreadsheet to track share price movements throughout the day. But again, unless you're licensing really expensive data feeds from the likes of Bloomberg or, or, or Morningstar, you're not going to be able to supplement that with the information required around things like corporate actions, like share splits and things like that, or, or dividends as well. We've seen some really fancy spreadsheets uh, in our time, but again, it's that that sort of bleeds into well, how much of your own time are you willing to spend, you know, building all these fancy macros and filters in a spreadsheet versus Paying a, a relatively low cost for a service like ShareSite.
3: You should see some of Bryce's spreadsheets that he makes <laughs> to track his uh, his personal expenses.
1: <laughs> well, it's funny you say that, Ren, because I am dealing with the situation that Doug just explained at the moment. I've recently changed brokers for part of my portfolio and when you bring it in or transfer across to Doug's point, it's just brought it in at a unit point of view. And so it says I'm in 100% profit on the total value of of that. (laughs) And so it's making my portfolio look phenomenal, where in actual fact I have... It's shocking. <laughs> if it weren't for my immaculate spreadsheets, <laughs> I wouldn't know what's going on.
4: Well, think about if you're kind of, you know, one of our kind of typical users, you know, you, you've been working in a professional capacity for, for decades, perhaps you're, you know, in your early 60s, you're getting ready to retire and you've had like six broker relationships over that time. It's it's a huge mess. And, and the last thing you want to do is screw up your history, you know because you need to keep a close eye on on that stuff as you begin to kind of live off of it into retirement.
1: Hmm. So you're CEO, but it was founded by a a father-son duo, Tony and Scott Ryburn. Pretty interesting story. Can you shed some light on that?
4: Yeah. Yeah. So Tony and Scott, and they're still very involved in the company today. So Tony's director of ours still. Scott's our CTO. So they are from like an accounting and a software background. And these guys, they basically took dad's problem which was a a very complex spreadsheet to track (laughs) Tony's shares and scott said all right i think we can build something to track this and i think we can do it in the browser and and this was like in oh 2008 so browser-based or cloud-based solutions of this caliber were not that popular there's a lot of you know stock market share market tracking software out there that you can download and the problem with that is that it becomes out of date very quickly. You need to purchase licenses. You need to update data feeds and all that. And it's it's really not a great solution. And so Scott thought that he could build something in the browser and they got some seed capital together from some early software developers and they, they built a prototype. They're very much kind of um, accounting and software sort of background people. They ran this business really in a, in a bootstrap kind of way in New Zealand Growing, you know, steadily, but but from a very small base in a very small market, and it wasn't until they attracted some capital from Australia and and launched a version of the product in Australia that they began to to really grow the business. And that's kind of how I came on board as well. But we're still very much doing the work that they sort of set out from from day one at ShareSight.
1: So I, I use it because exactly the reason I just explained. And for a lot of beginner investors, it's certainly a tool that they should also have a look at. But is it a free model? How does it work for those, you know, someone who might have 100 stocks? Can you explain
4: that? Sure. So it's a a freemium model and it's open-ended. So that means you can use the free version for as long as you'd like. So on the free version, you can track one portfolio and up to 10 holdings. So for a younger investor just getting started with a couple of shares, maybe a couple of ETFs, it's perfectly suitable especially if you're kind of doing your own tax filing or, and your affairs are pretty straightforward. Where the limitations come in though are around number of holdings and portfolios. And so a typical you know, user of ShareSight, somebody who's paying us for say our investor plan, which is $25 per month, that person will be tracking two portfolios. They'll be feeding in trades from two brokers. They'll have about 35 to 40 open positions in, in their portfolios at any one time. And those guys, men and women, I should say, are typically sharing access with their accountant as well. So the accountant can kind of have a look to see if everything's in order and extract information when it comes to tax time as well.
2: Mm, Nice.
3: So ShareSight has had a pretty phenomenal growth story. It now tracks over a million holdings. And I'm interested to know what your vision is for ShareSight in in the years ahead.
4: Yeah, sure. So yeah, we've grown really well over the last sort of three to five years. And really the plan is to kind of keep at what we're doing for the foreseeable future. So we wanna grow the business. We know we've got a lot more runway to grow in Australia, just given the appetite for self-directed investing here. But we're getting a foothold in markets like the US, Canada, and the UK as well. And so what we're doing now is we're building out product versions for those markets. When we kind of build a new country version of ShareSite, we need to ensure we track all the, the asset classes, all the, all the, all the data sets that people need. So is it, is it a managed fund sort of setup? Is it a mutual fund setup? Is it, is it various stock markets? This gets pretty complicated in places like Western Europe, where you're kind of investing on a global basis just by default. And then what we want to do is build out the tax reports as well. And that's pretty difficult, as you can imagine when it comes to doing various capital gains regimes and, and taxable income regimes as well.
3: Yeah, I imagine you'd have a tax lawyer for every
4: jurisdiction. <laughs> we, well, yes, we, we do. Yeah, it's tough to do. but you know we don't sort of give prescriptive tax advice and, and we don't allow people to you know connect ShareSite into the official tax filing you know databases. So we try to get people really close and get them to a point where they can do it themselves. Or just turn the reports over to their accountant and have them do it for them.
3: Speaking from personal experience, my last tax return, I have three different brokerage accounts. And, you know, I was downloading PDFs and scrolling through and recording every dividend payment and what the franking credit was. And you said you made it up. <laughs> <laughs> if the ATO is listening, I did not make it up. <laughs> but yeah, I can definitely see someone doing that and thinking there has to be a better way. And it looks like, um, Tony and Scott did that, and
4: they did. And, yeah. and the thing about Shareside is we're agnostic, so we don't care if you use one broker or five. You know, brokers will develop good solutions over time. No doubt about that. There are institutional, you know, financial software companies that will develop really good solutions and have developed really good solutions, but they only speak to the clients and the, the client assets that they hold. Right? They don't want to play nice with the rest of, of the marketplace because they're all their competitors where we don't really care. We, we want you to connect as many brokers into our software as you can.
1: So, Doug, I'm sure that by the nature of what you do, ShareSight has a huge amount of data on how Australians are investing and sort of where they're putting their money. We're mm-hmm. interested to know if there are any sort of particular interesting insights that you're able to share with us that perhaps we wouldn't necessarily be thinking about.
4: Yeah. So, I don't know. If you look at the headlines, right, like if you look at the Fin... And you spend any time in kind of their wealth section or their SMSF sections of the paper. That's the Australian Fin Review. You'll see that it's often reported that Australians are sort of hopelessly underinvested in technology, and they're hopelessly underinvested in overseas markets. And we don't really see that, actually, at share you know, keep in mind that the data we can see is is representative of people that have sort of sought out a solution, right? So by definition, they might be sort of more switched on, more sort of bleeding edge investors. But what we see is a, is a real significant move towards ETFs. So if you wind the clock back five or even three years, and you look at ETF usage uh, among share site portfolios, it was like three to 5% of trades or, or open positions. In user portfolios, but if you fast forward to today, that number is about 18 to 20 percent. So there's been a huge adoption of ETFs amongst the investors using ShareSight, and a good portion of those ETFs are indeed your S&P 500s, or your kind of your your footsie tracking ETFs as well. That's the UK-based uh, stock market index. So we are seeing a shift to international investing, but I don't think it gets it doesn't get picked up in the press because they still see that as an Australian-based investment because mm. you're still buying an Australian-listed ETF, mm. and they don't look through to see that the the funds are actually you know exposed to overseas investments.
1: What about age groups? I'd be interested to know if you have view on that, and you know, is there a particularly from a millennial point of view? Are you seeing growth in that space? A from just generally investing, and B, I'm assuming they're the ones that are kind of pushing this ETF growth, or
4: yeah, for sure. So we kind of have a barbell user base. We've got a lot of as I mentioned before, kind of those folks that are, they're SMSF trustees, they're sort of approaching retirement, they're later in their professional lives. um, And they're really kind of avid users of ShareSite, kind of bumping up against the limitations of our our highest level plans. And then we have a, a big cluster of younger investors as well, who are kind of hanging out on the free plan. And they were the ones who really pushed us to do our ETF tax reporting as well, because ETFs have become so popular with that age group. And certainly, I think a lot of the robo-advice companies that have launched are helping to push that as well, which which we think is great. You know, the more young people who can get into investing the better as far as we're concerned. Mm-hmm. So we, we do see a barbell approach there. And the other thing we can kind of comment on regarding age is if, if you take brokers as a proxy for age, right? If, and, and by that, I mean, if you look at, say, ComSec, which which is kind of the old growth of the share market in terms of the the clients that are using ComSec. And then if you kind of... Cascade that all the way down to sort of some of the new brokers that we work with, guys like Saxo or or Stake, you'll see a very different sort of typical portfolio from the ComSec clients of the world to to sort of some of these new startup brokers of the world. And really it's, you know, you're you're looking at sort of your Telstras and BHPs and companies paying really juicy dividends for the ComSec guys. And then you're looking at international shares and ETFs for the new brokers and their clients.
3: So, Doug, one question that I'm sure a lot of people have, I, I definitely have, is you know, as, as people get more experienced in investing and as brokerages sort of internationalize and you know, give you access to more and more markets, the temptation is to move away from BHP and ComBank and into you know, obscure Turkish managed funds and <laughs> East, Eastern European miners and stuff like that. What, what's ShareSite's global coverage like?
4: So we cover, I think it's 28 different stock exchanges around the world. So pretty much every major stock exchange is trackable in our product. The managed funds is a bit spottier. But we're bringing more managed funds coverage on around the world. But that's kind of more of a function of the local demand in those markets. But from an Aussie perspective, you can track pretty much any stock in the world on ShareSite.
1: So before we close out with some of our favorite final three questions, Doug, we thought we'd just take a look at what's coming in sort of 2020 from either What share site think or you personally? We've made a couple of bold predictions at the start of the year, but we'd like to know if you have any sort of big predictions for markets in 2020, especially given what has happened over sort of the last seven trading days or so.
4: Yeah, man, I don't know. It's I can't believe it's already into March 2020 already. I I would say, (laughs) gosh, if I had to make a responsible bet, I, I would say more sideways action for markets. I just think this volatility is is here to stay for a while. I think I mean, you see this whipsaw, I mean, not only the share market, but the oil prices, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. With, um, with Russia and Saudi Arabia basically getting into like a uh, sort of a race to the bottom on oil prices, you know, which is tied to all kinds of geopolitical stuff. And then, of course, you have the U.S. election coming down the, the pipe as well. So you know, no doubt that's going to create all kinds of gyrations in the market. And, and who knows what Trump's going to do or say? You know, Another I think one. he's yeah. Well, I mean, he's desperate. He's desperate to get this the market under control because he sort of thinks that that's the only meaningful barometer on his presidency. So it's yeah. I just think more volatility, honestly, and you know, the election is all the way down the track in November. So yeah, more of the same, which is sort of I guess why it's so important to find you know really high quality companies you're comfortable with now because you can buy some of those at a bit of a discount, you know. I mean, you asked the question earlier in the, in the interview about you know, our markets over or undervalued and and even if you think they're overvalued, if you're going to invest for the long term and I'm talking like 10, 20 years, you might as well take advantage of the dip, right?
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was looking at Google today alone, and it's down twenty percent from its peak, and we were talking at work that it's not often that you'd be looking at their stock chart and having an opportunity to buy Google at a twenty percent discount from its high. So whilst if you do zoom out to that three to five <laughs> years, it's, it's still awfully high. There's certainly some sure. opportunities out there.
3: Yeah, well, I mean yeah. we missed the GFC, well, we were both in high school still, but you know we weren't investing at the time, and, you know, we've lamented that for for years that that was the golden buying opportunity, and as much as it's not a great reason for us to be here, you know, it's making lemonade when life gives you lemons. How about that? <laughs> yeah, to-
4: totally. Yeah. Well, I-, I was lucky in that too because I had just moved to Australia when that was all hitting. And of course. Australia fared pretty well through that whole thing. So I don't think I was appropriately scarred either.
3: To close out the conversation around 2020, and don't worry about making responsible predictions. Bryce and I make very irresponsible (laughs) predictions. (laughs) Do you have any sectors, any uh, industries that you're watching or any themes that you think are really playing out that you might be paying more attention to than the majority of the market?
4: Mm, So I, I mentioned before software, obviously, but then Within software, look for those SaaS companies. What I love about SaaS is that it combines a very old school business model, like subscriptions, which is like, you know, the newspaper business essentially, with technology. So I really like that. And there's a lot of publicly listed SaaS companies out there. And the other one I think is is probably healthcare. I guess going back to kind of the discussion on coronavirus and all that, but also an aging population, right? Like people are living so much longer. And nobody really talks about the financial impact of that. Nobody talks about investing until 100 years old. No one talks about how the heck do you draw down a super over 20 years longer than it was designed to to last. You know what I mean? So how does that play out? And and how will healthcare companies themselves respond to that? I mean, is it an opportunity for them? Will it be too much for them to handle? I own a, a healthcare ETF, which I kind of actively check on, uh, just kind of regarding that space.
1: Yeah, it's a good point. I think it's something that is going to hit governments quite significantly. And to your point, doesn't feel like it is being talked enough, at least in public domain anyway. To close out our interview, Doug, we always have three final questions. But before Ren kicks off with that, I'd just like to at least let our equity mates community know that ShareSite, you guys have hit us up with a bit of an offer for any of our community who are looking to to get involved a bit more seriously with ShareSight. As you said, you can sign up for free and can have up to ten holdings tracked, which is which is awesome for anyone to your point, Doug, who has just a couple of ETFs or maybe is just starting on their journey. And it's a great way to bring all of that together and get a true reflection of how your portfolio is going. But for those that are looking to take that sort of next serious step, if you head to sharesite.com forward slash AU forward slash equity mates, there's an offer there that will give you two months free when you purchase an annual premium plan. So a pretty good offer considering the value that you will get out of this, not only from an ability to track all of your shares in one spot and get a true display of what's going on but also the ease that you'll get at tax time as well around the reporting side of things so a sign up for free and and start tracking and then b if you're looking to take that next step head to sharesite.com au forward slash equity mates and there's an offer there for two months free
3: no dot au just dot com slash au what what we might do it revert to we, it <laughs> we might yeah. chuck the link in the show notes as well so if you're not following bryce's spelling out the <laughs> link uh just click on the show notes for this episode and you can just hit the link
1: absolutely we've also put this link in our facebook group multiple times so if you are looking for it in there check it out i would say The majority of our community are in ShareSite in one way or
3: another. (laughs) So, Doug, as Bryce said, we like to close out our interview with the same three questions every time. So, we'll get stuck into that. The first question is, do you have any must-read books? And, And these can be investing or otherwise.
4: Oh, man. All right. So, investing, I would say a book that really helped me prep for my interviews when I started my career in finance was A Random Walk Down Wall Street by Burton Malkiel. That's a really good kind of grounding book on what does and, and doesn't drive uh, returns for investors. And the other one I would say, which is a bit more of a narrative is is The Snowball, which is a biography on Warren Buffett. And yep. like Great book. Buffett is such a cliche in terms of investing and investing stories and all that, but he's a cliche for a reason. And he has just an unbelievable ability to make complex things easy to understand yeah. and his story is incredible and like you'll you'll learn about like why he fell in love with insurance yeah. companies which seems really boring on the face of it but then when he explains it to you he's a vis the writer like it, it makes so much sense and you're like oh my god insurance companies are the best business models in the world so it's an awesome book i would i would highly recommend that and you can get you know you get little snippets of that too in, in the berkshire annual reports and his letter which they publish on their website so you can download those as well on the non-investing side, I, I kind of go back to the classics. A book that I've just picked up again is Catcher in the Rye by Salinger. So I, I, uh, I go back to that. That was kind of a state of American high school literature. But it does a good job with sort of, you know, with the protagonist of talking about sort of outcasts and people who go against the grain. And I think some of the best investors in the world are people that do go against the grain. I think some of the best people working in software are people that go against the grain as well. And, you know, if you find yourself in a position where, you kind of, you're working in software, and you need to kind of manage different talent and things like that. I don't know. I think it's helpful to kind of look at the world through that lens too.
3: Right. So the second question that we like to ask is, what's your go to source for investing information?
4: Yeah. So I go to Morningstar for like fundamental research and recommendations. And then obviously, the asterisk there. I worked there for a long time. I, I know. <laughs> I know their process. I'm not getting paid. Uh, for saying that i swear but they do do a good job and i've seen it with my own my own eyes their their analysis is absolutely objective they have analysts there they spend a lot of time evaluating companies and manage funds and they don't get paid based on their calls they're not incentivized by investment banks or anyone else with a skin in the game so they do about as good of a job as you can do on that front And, and the other one that i go to as well Honestly, for kind of quick hit info, is, is just bloomberg.com. I mean, yeah. if I want to check, you know, the stock market or whatever, I, I just like their their UX and their yeah. the speed, of their site basically. Same. So easy.
3: <laughs> and then the last question, Doug, to close this out. If you think back to your early days investing when you were buying Disney shares and win it, winning Illinois State, investing comps. And buying hockey tables. <laughs> and buying <laughs> hockey tables. <laughs> what advice would you give to your younger self?
4: Uh, I would have lived at home for longer to save more money to invest. <laughs> I, was, I basically borrowed money from my dad for the deposit of my first apartment in Chicago because I couldn't wait to get out of there. But in retrospect, I had it pretty sweet at home. You know, There was food around, rent was free. And on a relative basis, I would have been saving a heck of a lot more money that I could have invested or done something else with.
1: Unfortunately, Wren's just moved out of home. So lucky boy.
4: <laughs> yeah. It's di- it's different in Australia. People stay at home forever. I, I think know, this I is think... like, yeah, my, my, we've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old and, and my wife is keeps talking she's like, oh, I'm so excited The kids are like never going to leave. And it just sounds awful <laughs> to me. Uh, think
3: I got to say, I, I moved out when I was 18 and then moved back in when I was 27. <laughs> and moving back in, you do save a lot of money, but it's a hard readjustment to go back. Especially if you just
1: moved out. I think the average age in Australia is something like 31 or something ridiculous. Really? Like, yeah, yeah. Jeez. But that's, that's with a move out, move back kind of. Ah, uh, okay. To, you know,
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Back, so I'm skewing ones. the average is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, well, right, it's, it's, it's Sydney's awfully expensive, so I get that.
3: That's why That's why Bryce and I b- both moved to Canberra. The only way we could move out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Smart. University. Doug, really appreciate you spending your time with us for the last hour or so. It's been very enjoyable talking to you and I hope we have managed to kill the appetite for <laughs> all of our... Not
3: kill the appetite, spark the <laughs> Sp- appetite. <laughs> well,
1: I mean, for everyone continuously asking us to get done <laughs> on the show. It's been great for you to come on and, I guess, share everything that is share site, and we know personally, it is a great product. And as we said at the start, you know, Ren was super pumped. Our community also find a lot of value in it. So I guess just a thanks from us for such a good product and also sharing your time with us today. So look forward
4: to getting in touch later in the year and big thanks. Oh, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate the time and thank you so much for having me on.
2: Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional.